this computer and we are rolling. Excellent, excellent. All right. Uh, hello, everyone, and thanks very much for joining me today. Uh, I've been really excited for this um, uh, this interview because my guest today is somebody who I've been following for about three and a half years now. Uh, I actually met him in New York City on November 1st, 2017. I just happened to remember numbers very well. That was the date. Um, my guest here is, he's done groundbreaking work in the area of not only examining cognitive decline and uh, let's say Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, uh, cognitive decline, but also the work he's doing in the area of uh, creating this first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. It's amazing. And I'm so glad uh, you're joining me today. You have, um, you are a professor at UCLA and we were talking off camera here, over 200 papers published about neurodegeneration, a new clinical trial that just finished up. So I'd love to hear about that. And without further ado, I want to introduce uh, best-selling author, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Thanks very much, Carl. Thanks for Alzheimer's. having me. The end of Alzheimer's. You even signed it for me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and also, of course, I want to talk about your new book, too, the, new, the newest book. Right. Love it. I love it. So all the work you're doing here, uh, to me, it's so fascinating. Um, you know, I've, I've gone through the, and devoured these books completely. I have both of them on audiobook, too, because I learn better when I listen. But when I really like something, I like to go through, highlight, mark it up, take notes, which I have many here. So tell me, um, why don't we start with what's going on and, and, and the latest, let's say, regarding research. You just finished a clinical trial. Right. Uh, what's happening? Yeah. So just to take a step back here, you know, for uh, over 100 years that people have been trying to treat neurodegenerative illness with various drugs, etc. The approach has always been the same. If you do a clinical trial, you predetermine a treatment that's a uniform treatment and you say, okay, we're going to treat Alzheimer's disease or MCI or Parkinson's or what have you with drug X. And what our research over the last 30 years suggested is that we need to flip that script completely. Instead, we need to take each person who has a neurodegenerative condition, be it Lewy body or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or what have you, and we need to look at all of the different contributors. And I think part of the problem has been that people felt that, well, there's no, you know, there's no known cause for Alzheimer's. Well, we now know about many different contributors. And so we look at a large number of variables uh, from various blood tests, uh, urine tests, um, uh, historical features, et cetera. Uh, and then you can get a pattern, you get a profile for each person. This is very much what's been done uh, with so-called precision medicine for people with cancer. We get a precise look at what's going on and what's actually driving the problem. Then we target those things. So it's, it's a it's theoretically uh, much more appropriate way to deal with the neurodegenerative process. And, you know, neurodegeneration of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. There hasn't been anything for ALS, for PS, FTD, for LB, all these different things, including Alzheimer's. And so now with looking at this and targeting them, we reported the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline back in 2014, another group in 2016. Then in 2018, we published 100 patients that had documented improvement. 
And then of course, the next step after the anecdotes is then to do a clinical trial. This is a small proof of concept trial, then that will allow us to do a larger trial. But this proof of concept trial has just been completed. Uh, we're just writing up the results to be published. So very enthusiastic about that. And we're seeing just as we did with the anecdotal reports previously, uh, unprecedented improvement in people who have cognitive decline. See, that's fantastic. You know, um, there's a statement you make, I'm not sure if it's in the book or an interview I might've seen. It's kind of like the uh, broken down car syndrome. Go to the garage. Right, right. They say, well, it's broken and it's going to die. It seems like that's how it's been uh, for most of time up until fairly recently with various uh, neurological or neurodegenerative disorders. Yeah. And of course, on a, on a car, if you're going to do the testing and they're not paying, well, you have to pay out of pocket. So exactly. here, has anything changed in the way of, um, let's say, reimbursement for any of the testing that can be done to determine anything, whether testing for APU, APOE4 or uh, just any of the testing? Has anything changed there? Yeah, it's a great point. And you know, the, as far as reimbursement, some of these things you can get reimbursed in some, uh, you know, with some insurance um, and some you can't. But yeah, as you mentioned, uh, what I said was, this is like you go to the, your mechanic and the mechanic says, oh, Carl, we know exactly what's wrong with your car. It's called car not working syndrome. <laughs> yes, and it, it, it makes no yeah. sense to us. But that's exactly what, when we call something Alzheimer's disease, it's like saying car not working syndrome. Right. It's just saying, here's a person's name, Alzheimer, that we attach to this degenerative process and that we don't understand what's causing it. And then you say, well, aren't you going to do some tests to find out? And then the response from the doctor is we don't do those tests because they're not reimbursed. And so the reality is we've entered an age and going from the 20th century to the 21st century. And unfortunately, as you know, most medicine currently being practiced is still 20th century medicine, where you look at a very small number of things, and then you give a prescription that doesn't work for, for uh, complex chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's disease. And that's been the experience again and again and again. And 21st century medicine is fundamentally different. Instead of asking, what is the diagnosis? You ask, why is it? Why do you have cognitive decline? Is it related to insulin resistance? Is it related to specific pathogens that come up again and again and again, from herpes simplex to P. gingivalis to F. nucleatum to you know, on and on and on. There are all these pathogens that are associated with the underlying process that we call Alzheimer's disease, which is just a pathological diagnosis, to various toxins, to vascular damage, and on and on and on. So we have to look at each of those for each person, and we have to target those things to get the best outcomes. And as you indicated, typically this is not being reimbursed, unfortunately. On the other hand, the average person who gets Alzheimer's spends a total of $350,000, which is for nursing homes, of course. So you can reduce that dramatically by doing the right things in prevention or reversal instead of waiting until late until you're in a nursing home. Interesting. You know, um, most of the work that I'm, well, if you will, um, not trying to impress you, believe me, known for though is has to do with Parkinson's, but most of my clients don't have Parkinson's. They have some type of cognitive decline, which yeah. may be uh, uh, something that accompanies um, 
Parkinson's, let's say, but a lot right. of times it's not, it's just cognitive decline. So one of the things that I've noticed, um, the, the main doctor here in Syracuse, New York, where I live near is, uh, who refers to me is I, I bought him a copy of this book, by the way, he, this, your new one, he doesn't know it yet and he'll have it before this post. But anyways, he's going to love this because he looks at things, treating the body holistically, what you put in your belly, what you eat, your stress level, your sleep, the quality of sleep, quality of life. And um, one of the things I find really interesting is when we start doing some of this training with people, and you, you talk about it in here a lot, is that we actually see it's like some switches go on and they start to get more aware of things. They're thinking faster. The processing speeds up. And some of the things that we do aren't that complicated, right. but they weren't doing it before. So it's nice to see that, that there can be a degree, sometimes a great degree of progress in, in the way of memory, Absolutely. cognition. Um, tell me, you know, one of the things that I was uh, really stood out to me, I'll never forget it. You were speaking at the Maria Shriver event in New York City, and you talked about how Parkinson's, Alzheimer's can, can live in the gut for decades, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe longer. I don't know. That stood out to me so much. And um, did I hear you maybe refer to this as like type 3 diabetes, Alzheimer's? So Alzheimer's has been called type 3 diabetes by some people. Uh, this, again, I would argue that's a part of it, so that okay. there are people that we call the various subtypes. When you look at Alzheimer's disease, there are people that have a mainly inflammatory, which we would call type 1 Alzheimer's disease, right. uh, things like high HSCRPs, and it can be from things like leaky gut or from other inflammagens. Type 2 is atrophic Alzheimer's disease. Very different people, very different cause. It still ends up as Alzheimer's. Okay. But again, it comes back to root cause medicine. You want to be treating the type ones with reducing their inflammation and then getting rid of whatever's causing it. You want to be treating the type two people by getting rid of that atrophy, by getting rid of the low hormones, low nutrients, low trophic factors. And then there is type 1.5. Which is, got, which is the glycotoxin. These are the people that have insulin resistance and have wow. damage from sugar. Um, they have, the, the, as you know, the, the glucose sticks onto many, many different proteins, much like remoras on a shark. And it changes the protein's shape and it changes its function. And so this gives you problems and a very, very common contributor to Alzheimer's. So that is what people would call type three diabetes. But again, as you can see, it's a bigger problem than just type 3 diabetes, even though, yes, sure. um, glucose and insulin resistance is a common contributor to Alzheimer's, but it's not the only contributor. Okay. Thank you for that, for clarifying that. Um, yeah, I had written down some notes here about inflammation, leaky yeah. gut, diet. And it seems to me, and um, I, you're the expert in this area, of course, but how does how has this changed over the decades? Because it seems like when I was I'm 59, so almost 60. So when I was a kid, yeah, um, I, I worked at a grocery store. We didn't have nearly as many when I was stocking shelves. Not as many, nearly as many processed foods. We had them, right. but it wasn't the same. Um, has the food supply had any influence on what's happening right now with brain degeneration, neurodegeneration? 
No question. Uh, again and again and again, this comes up, and we wrote about this in the book, as you mentioned. Yeah, yes. Uh, and so, absolutely, processed foods, and as you know, there's just been more publication uh, about its relation to uh, cardiac uh, disease, another problem. But yes, um, what's happened with these, unfortunately, with these uh, highly processed foods is that they are increasing the load of glucose. Um, they often have, you know, as they say, salt, fat, sugar, the various things that people are putting in there uh, to get you to eat it. Yeah. Um, and so again, this goes back to so-called root cause medicine, as we were talking about a minute ago, understanding what's driving the process. We've heard a lot, for example, about uh, air pollution. More and more has come out on air pollution as an important driver for cognitive decline. So we worry, for example, with the California fires that were out here uh, this past year, huge issue. Of course, all the post-COVID-19 people, all the people who've been exposed to COVID-19 are at increased risk. Many people have uh, some uh, so-called brain fog and essentially early cognitive decline, which gets better after the COVID, but they're at risk for future problems. And by the way, as you know, they're also at risk for future Parkinson's. There have been a number of cases of Parkinson's reported after COVID-19. So all of these things contribute. And yes, you're right. Uh, processed foods are an important contributor. And one of the things we find frequently is that people have very poor metabolic profiles because mm. of too much eating uh, of processed foods. So the good news is you can measure all these things now. It's just that when you go to an Alzheimer's center, they don't typically measure these things. But human beings are complicated organisms, of course, and measuring these various things, you can actually get an idea. You know, am I on the way to having type 2 diabetes and am I on the way to having Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's or things like that? And, you know, we all should be looking at these because the difference between, you know, 100 years ago, people were all dying of acute, simple illnesses like pneumonia and diphtheria and tuberculosis and things like that. Now, all of us are dying of complex chronic illnesses. And if you simply look, you can see them coming for years ahead of time, as you alluded to you can actually have Alzheimer's, the beginnings of the pathophysiology about 20 years before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And as right. you indicated, absolutely both in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's, there are clear con uh, contributions from the gut and the microbiome and leakiness, things like that. Interesting, uh, part three here really of this new book, folks, uh, the End of Parkinson's Program, which I highly recommend everybody buy. And this one too, of course. Um, you really go into a nice uh, a lot of detail here of, of microbes and microbiomes, uh, supplements, just everything. It, uh, what I love about these books, and especially the second one, is how deep you go into how we can treat this, if you will, to enhance cognition and reverse decline. And it's just all these different factors. The You'll be mind, being mindful of feelings. I love how you talk about that. Connecting with, uh, connecting with people. Of course, with COVID, it's a little different now, but yeah. a lot of us can still get together to some degree, just stay away, wear a mask or whatever, instead of social media. Right. Uh, become, you know, uh, connected with like-minded like uh, uh, people who are on the same mission as you. I know, I know it really helps me a lot because my willpower is fairly strong. But there are times when I get weak and I need help and I have to reach out to my like-minded friends. Hold me accountable, please. 
Yeah. So as you indicated, the first book was really about the concept. You know, we can do this. Quit, quit saying this stuff is irreversible. Here's the, here is the science that is telling us what we can do. And of course, lots of examples of people who had improved. The, a lot of people after the first book said, we want more details. Where do we go? What uh, websites do we go to? Where do we get trained? Where do we get a, you know, a coach? All that sort of stuff. So we tried to put all the details in the second book, the program book. Um, so that people could really do this step by step for themselves. I, I love it too. It's a great outline for a plan, so it can be personalized. Um, right. Which is another thing too. The personalized medicine these days. I think that uh, people, especially like you, who are on the on the forefront of things, are really appreciating the value, or, or really way better than I do. Personalized medicine is so important. Personalizing things and uh, a treatment plan for the individual. Um, I love how you have in the book about always be learning. You know, maybe it's involving a class you take, learning a language, play an instrument, listen to music, uh, train your brain. Puzzles. Uh, the, the the app. I love the uh, Brain HQ is a great one. Yeah. And my people who I work with like to do these things too. I mean, we try to do what they like, obviously. If somebody doesn't want to dance, we're not going to dance. But getting moving, keeping moving, and using the brain is so, so important. I really appreciate everything you have in this book about all of that. Well, again, you know, if you look at what Alzheimer's disease actually is, which is what my laboratory studied for 30 years, it really is a disease of neuroplasticity. So you have, and you know, every second you've got synapses and you've got about 500 trillion synapses in your brain. So just an amazing supercomputer inside your skull. And every second, these things are deciding, are we going to make a connection? Are we going to pull back? And there is synaptoblastic signaling that is making and keeping connections. And there is synaptoclastic signaling that is pulling these apart. And that's normal. Everybody's, you know, actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday, but at the same time, remembering things like where your keys are, what you're going to do later today. So you've got this tremendous plasticity. When you are developing Alzheimer's, you're on the wrong side of that. So the synaptoclastic signals are outweighing the synaptoblastic signals, much as you would see with osteoporosis, where you have more of the osteoclastic signals than you do of the osteoblastic. So you're unfortunately degrading bone more than you're making bone. And so then the long run, you get osteoporosis. Same idea. This is synaptoporosis. And so we want to bring in all of these signals that are actually supportive. And then part of this is to increase your trophic activity, BDNF, NGF, things like that, nerve growth factor, factor, uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And those are the sorts of things where uh, having some brain exercises turns out to be helpful. Now, again, I'd hasten to add brain exercises alone, doing nothing else, not nearly as good as doing the other pieces. You, you're, it's really like you are, you know, you're like you're making an orchestra play together. You got to get all the instruments playing the right things. And then you have this beautiful sound. If you just have one thing, it just doesn't sound like an orchestra. Exactly. Exactly. It seems, you know, when we get into doing movement with some cognition, um, you know, everyone has a different time span or length of time they can chunk, let's say, and focus, whether it's 30 seconds, two minutes, but, you know, getting moving, 
uh, practicing some balance, perhaps some dynamic balance, maybe sometimes it's just walking and talking and maybe playing catch with a ball. But the idea of, you know, get the heart rate up just a little bit at least, or maybe a little bit more than a little bit and blood and oxygen to the brain. But that whole thing about BDNF is, is so fascinating to me in that it, it seems like, I think I read somewhere they call it miracle grow for the brain. That might be a nickname where it, 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 if I'm correct, this will help to preserve to some degree anyway, cellular structure, cellular integrity, BDNF. Absolutely. BDNF is a critical trophic factor and does support uh, synaptic formation and maintenance and does clearly have an anti-Alzheimer's effect. Beautiful, beautiful. And the, uh, you know, the whole idea of neuroplasticity in and of itself, being able to learn new things. uh, I mean, we can do that all of our lives, right? Absolutely. And Professor Mike done a lot of work showing that neuroplasticity is lifetime. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, my, my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, I didn't know her real well. She passed away when I was 16. It was 1977. Um, but she had Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and, um, in the back of my head, it's not anything I'm really worried about yet. At the same time, I'm wondering about the genetic, uh, uh, genetic factor. And, I know I've seen you interviewed about this and you talk about it in the book. In fact, the AP, APOE4.info looks like an interesting site, which I have not checked out uh, thoroughly yet. What for, for anyone who is, let's say, a genetic uh, predisposition for something like right. Alzheimer's, um, what, 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 off, what advice do you offer? Is it, yeah. is it beneficial to know if we have the APOE? APOE4 gene or not? Absolutely. And in the past, people have said, don't bother to find out because there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I think it's important, and we recommend that anybody who's 45 years of age or older, please get a cognoscopy. Just as you would, we all know we're supposed to get a colonoscopy when we turn 50. Well, if you're 45 or older, please get a cognoscopy. And that's just some basic lab tests and looking at a simple online cognitive assessment. So easy to do um, and includes genetics. And there are several dozen genes that are associated with risk. But as you indicated, by far and away, the number one, the big one, which is the common one, is ApoE4. And so this is apolipoprotein E, which is a protein that actually carries around fats, turns out to be very, very important in inflammation and important in cardiac disease and very important in Alzheimer's disease. So in the United States, about 75 million people have one copy of ApoE4. The majority, three quarters of us have zero. We like, for example, I checked myself, I'm an APOE 3.3, which is kind of the vanilla, it's the most common thing. And so my lifetime risk with with zero copies of APOE 4 is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. With a single copy of APOE 4, that's 75 million Americans, um, it's about 30%. And with two copies, that's about 7 million Americans then it is about 
uh, between 50 and 90%. So more, it's more likely that you will get Alzheimer's than that you will avoid it. And so we recommend everybody, if you find out that you have a copy, it's first of all, great to find out if you do. Yeah. And if you do, get on to apoe4.info. This was uh, started by Julie G, a person who herself is apoe 44 and actually had cognitive decline and has done extremely well. Um, she's yeah. now eight years uh, on uh, the approach, and she's actually a contributor to this second book, as you mentioned. Yeah, and actually the dedication in the book here too, which is really absolutely. Nice. And dedica I dedicated that because these are people. This whole group of three thousand plus individuals on right. apoe4.info are helping change the world and helping the uh, you know millions at risk throughout the world, and right. should hope to reduce and should help us to reduce the global burden of dementia. So the answer is yeah, absolutely yeah. find out if you are positive or negative. And all it means is if you are positive, you simply want to be a little more stringent on getting onto prevention. And we recommend that everybody get on prevention. If there's anybody in your family who has cognitive decline, please get on prevention. And the reality is we should all as we get over 45, be on a general uh, prevention. And there's a lot that can be done now that wasn't even known 10 years ago that can reduce right. your risk for cognitive decline. It should be a rare illness. It, it, exactly. In fact, when you uh, signed your book to me, you said to Carl, let's make dementia a rare disorder. You know, yeah, and I which we can. never forgot that when I read that. Um, what about uh, 23andMe? When they do the testing, can they test for APOE? APOE4. They do. And then you'll, you'll, as you'll notice, you have to click the little thing that says, yes, I'm about to find out my APOE status. And yes, I want to do that. Now, about 15% of the time, um, they won't get a readout for APOE. But the majority of the time, no problem. And they can give you that. And they also can give several other uh, genes that are sure. associated with Alzheimer's. So it's a, it's a oh. good thing to know. It's one easy way to do it is through 23andMe. But you can also do it through your doctor and you can do it through uh, you know, a cognoscopy. Any of those things, are, they're all fine. Now, please forgive me for not knowing the answer to this question, but is a cognos cognoscopy an actual thing that if I was to say to my doctor, for example, I would like a cognoscopy, cognoscopy. Will he know what I'm talking about? Probably not. So okay. I coined that term to, to let people know, yeah, it's like a colonoscopy. You want to know about your head, but you can go on the internet and get one directly. Oh. Um, and it just well, consists of three things. Number one is a set of blood tests that mm -hmm. will look at things, many things that your doctor is not typically looking at that are associated with the critical pieces for that. The second thing it will do is a simple online cognitive assessment to tell you how well are you doing? Are you already beginning? Because that's one of the things that's a problem with this. It tends to sneak up on people because people, you know, they, they, they say, well, I'm not that bad yet. I'll let me just wait till next year. And the doctor yeah. often says that too. Oh, you're not that bad. Come back next year. And then after several years of that, the doctor says, oh, sorry, you got Alzheimer's. There's nothing we can do. So the reality is we want to jump yeah. in early. So that's the second piece. The third piece is optional. It's only if you've got symptoms, you also want to have an MRI with volumetrics. But if you have no symptoms, you don't need to get that third part, just get the blood test. Again, it's very much like everybody wants to know their cholesterol. Well, this is the same thing, but it's for your brain function. So of course, it's a little more complicated than that, because there are many things that contribute to your brain function. But it's the same idea as checking your lipid panel to see whether you're at risk for cardiovascular disease. Okay. 
Um, I'm being, being presumptuous here, but I am guessing it's probably better to have your doctor do this through blood testing and all that than maybe a 23andMe. Not to diminish 23andMe. It could be very handy and find out a lot of things. But what is your recommendation there if we want to have testing done? Yeah. Um, you, well, 23andMe doesn't do most of this testing. They only do the genetic part. Oh, so they okay. do right. the cognoscopy. So you can do the cognoscopy directly online or absolutely you can go to your doctor and say, I'd like to okay. get this series of tests. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, I mean, I don't know if insurance pays for that. And personally, I wouldn't care. I would be out of pocket because it'd be worth it to know for me personally. I just want to know. Again, it, it should so. save you you know, hundreds of thousands oh, of dollars man. in uh, nursing home costs down the road. Yeah. That's the idea. Absolutely. So before we uh, sign off here in just a few minutes, I was wondering if you would mind talking a little bit about the brain food pyramid. Yes. Great point. So, you know, back in the early 1970s, um, a food pyramid appeared. Uh, and, you know, the, the government was saying, look, these are the things you should be eating. And unfortunately, as you know, that was a period where obesity was really increasing, mm -hmm. where type 2 diabetes really increasing, where cognitive decline really increasing. And in association with people eating lots of you know, high carb diets, high ultra processed food diets, all the sorts of things that we in the Western world have been eating, especially over the last 50 years. And so we thought, you know, uh, when I did this, this second book, I wanted to have a, I wanted to have not just the science part and the physician, the neurologist part, but also uh, someone who's using this every day and doing it very successfully, uh, who therefore is, you know, been, who's seen all the things that it takes. And that's Julie G. Um, and then also my wife, uh, who contributed to that part of the book as well, who is an, a, a functional medicine physician. So that way we have the science, the, cl the clinical part, and then we also have the user part every day. And so we put together the brain food pyramid to point out that the original food pyramid actually supports a lot of disease problems. And unfortunately, we as, you know, as the Western, the Western world, we found this in the last several decades. You can just track these things up. So the idea here is that you've got to look at this differently. So the base of the pyramid, the most important thing is fasting, right? So it's the, you know, it's the, uh, you know, it's the basic stuff that that actually helps you. And so the diet that we recommend is called KetoFlex 12.3. So the idea is what has worked best, and there are a lot of publications on this now, what has worked best for cognition is a mildly ketotic diet. So we're mm -hmm. putting you into a mild ketosis because when you're having cognitive decline, you, as you know, your brain does not utilize glucose as well as it should. And so mm -hmm. you need to bridge. There's literally an energy gap that you can bridge with some ketones. And at the beginning, you can simply take some ketones. You can take it as ketone salts or esters, or you can actually take it as MCT oil or coconut oil, all those ways people have, have used to increase their ketones. It does improve cognition. That's been published repeatedly. But over time, then, we want to get you into endogenous ketosis, where you're making your own ketones by burning your own fat. And so what the, the diet that's actually worked best is a plant-rich, mildly ketogenic, high fiber diet, 
optimizing your microbiome and having periods of fasting that are critical to allow your brain, for example, to cleanse. Um, you're actually getting rid of some of the damaged proteins, damaged membranes, damaged lipids. So you want to go for 12 to 16 nice. hours of fasting at night. So for example, if you finish your last meal at seven, you really don't want to eat before 7 a.m. and preferably even nine. So you want to give yourself 12 to 14. If you're APOE4 positive, you actually do better with bringing the fats in. So you want to go a little longer. So 14 okay. to 16 hours. And we talked about that a little bit in the book. Yeah, so that's the base of this. No, and then of course, fantastic. at the very top of this, um, it's going to be the it's going to be the the indulgences, and then in the intermediate layers of the pyramid. So the next above fasting um, is going to be you know things like uh, vegetables, thing non-starchy vegetables, things like that, and then the middle layer is going to be things that enhance your microbiome, things like uh, resistant starches and probiotics and things like that, and then in the fourth level are going to be things like uh, uh, fruits um, and then meats. And, you know, uh, grass-fed beef, no problem. Uh, you know, for people who want to be vegetarians, no problem. You can still get yourself into ketosis and do great. For people who do want to have some meat and fish, no problem. That's, that's great as well. Um, you can follow your numbers and you can follow on Chronometer, which is a free uh, app uh -huh. I found very helpful. Um, you can follow, are you getting enough of these various nutrients? And one of the things that's very common, by the way, is not to be getting enough choline. Most of us are deficient in several things. Most of us are deficient in magnesium, zinc, iodine, choline, another choline. big one, and, and fiber, another common one. Um, and of course, choline is particularly important because it is a precursor for acetylcholine, which is the critical neurotransmitter in Alzheimer's disease and sure. the critical one for memory. And people with Alzheimer's are low in their acetylcholine. So we should all be making sure we get enough choline. And that's about 550 milligrams per day of choline. I really, I'm really glad you said that. By the way, I apologize for the barking dog. I think UPS probably got here. <laughs> so sorry, folks. Good, it good happens sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So if you missed anything there, buy the book. Yeah. You're gonna, you're gonna be glad you did. Uh, Colleen, though, when it comes to that, I've, I've been, um, you know, learning about this over the past few years about acetylcholine and um, the importance of this as a newer neurotransmitter for right. it, it almost seems, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that it, it, it marks neurons that are active in a learning process, let's say for strengthening. Is that, is that true? Well, it's, it's a neurotransmitter in a couple of major areas uh, in the brain. And those are areas that are heavily uh, damaged in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so the, from the basal forebrain projecting out to the cortex, that is all uh, cholinergic signaling. Uh, so okay. it's critical. And then there's also brainstem uh, signaling with uh, acetylcholine as well. So this is a critical neurotransmitter. Okay. All right. Um, is, how about the hippocampus? Is there, yeah. is there so uh, the relation is between choline, would that help hippocampus as well? Absolutely. Curious. And of course, okay. hippocampus is damaged and is associated with memory and is damaged in Alzheimer's. Of course, the big uh, transmitter in the brain uh, is glutamate. Uh, and there, in general, there is a balance between the 
glutamatergic signal, the glutamate, which is uh -huh. more excited, excitatory, and the GABA, which is inhibitory. And so there's a balance, again, the balance that is upset in Alzheimer's. And then in the case of Alzheimer's, you have a reduction early on in the GABAergic signal. So you've got too much excitatory signaling. And that's one of, that's the reason Namenda uh, was uh, originally uh, developed as a drug because it has an anti-glutamatergic effect. It's an uh -huh. inhibitor of glutamatergic signaling. And so this is also why people who have Alzheimer's frequently will have uh, non-convulsive seizures. So if you look at the brain, there is some ongoing mild seizure activity, even though they typically don't have grand mal seizures in most cases. So th these, is all, these neurotransmitters are clearly affected in Alzheimer's disease, just as, as you know, the dopaminergic system is so heavily impacted uh, in Parkinson's sure. disease. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, very, very interesting. I, I'm, uh, okay. Well, before we sign off here, and, and by the way, when we do, if you don't mind just hanging on an extra, like one minute with me um, before we sign off, but before we sign off, I just want to say um, thank you very, very, very much for your time. I know you're busy. You've made you. time for this today. I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much, Carl. And I think it's great for all of us to get the word out that these neurodegenerative diseases that are so common, they're just so unfortunate and they've been so untreatable. There's a tremendous amount that can be done, especially prevention and especially early. So please don't wait. If you've got cognitive changes, please get in, get evaluated as quickly as possible. And preferably, again, uh, make sure that you're in prevention. And everybody who has significant Alzheimer's, get the children in when they turn 45 so that they'll never, so you literally can stop it with that generation. Yeah, exactly. You know, the other thing too is like, like you mentioned earlier and you mentioned in the books, it's for everyone. We can all be in this preventative um, way of living. Absolutely. Right. There's, we can only gain from it. We, we're not going to do any harm. That's for sure. We can only gain. Um, so folks go out and buy this. Um, any preferred place where you like people to go? I know I got mine on, well, from you, <laughs> but yeah. I got this one on Amazon and I know it's in bookstores and. Um, yeah. Barnes and Noble and Costco and various places you can get it. Yeah. But you can get it uh, online very easily. Fantastic. So yes, the end of Alzheimer's, I would recommend get this and get this too. the end of Alzheimer's program. Um, my last question is, and you may have just said it, but any words of wisdom for people, any final uh, advice that you'd like to give to the audience? Yeah, that what's happening now is that Alzheimer's is becoming a choice. Before it was an inevitability for certain people, and now it's becoming a choice. So please get on, get evaluated, get on prevention, and let's make it so that it doesn't ever affect your family again in future generations. That's that's the good news. It's it's now really a choice. You know, it almost makes me think, and um, I'm probably going to upset some people, and it's not my intention. It's really because I care about people, but it's almost like being a type two diabetic is oftentimes a choice. Right. Sorry. It's true. We can reverse this so yep. easily a lot of times, really, or simply. Simple isn't always easy, but right. still, it can be done. Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Carl. Really appreciate it. Happy New Year and best to everyone. Everyone stay safe. Thank you, sir. Go out and buy the books, folks. They're well worth the read. It's a great investment in your library. 
I think I've read the first book four times and the second book twice already. And I have them on audio too, because I like to listen. So again, thank you, Dr. Bredesen. Thank you everybody for watching. Happy New Year. Have a fantastic day. Thank you.